0: All right, so our first session, first a word about our format for the event. Uh, although we are set up in the conventional uh, table with the cloth on it and the, the row of microphones and nameplates, and you can expect when you see that usually at a conference that you'll then be bombarded with a sequence of set piece presentations and then the floor is open for questions, we were striving for something a little bit different with this event uh, across all our sessions. We want them to be moderated dialogue. So in each case... We have a uh, session moderator who has been in communication with the other participants in advance about various topics and questions that ought to be discussed. And it will hopefully be much more of a conversational, participatory, dialogue-style engagement, um, which is not to say that it won't eventually be opened up for questions from the floor. Of course, we will do that. But uh, just so you're not surprised, it won't be a series of 15 minutes for each speaker moving along down the line. Uh, my job in each case will be to introduce the moderator, and it's a special uh, pleasure for me to introduce this session's moderator, uh, my my good friend, colleague, and, and frequent co-author, Ben Wittes. Ben is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is uh, co-founder, editor-in-chief, and in the driving spirit within the Lawfare blog, which, is, as you may know, is a blog I also participate in. Lawfare is a... Uh, It's meant to be a place to go online to to see coverage of the intersection between law and national security very broadly understood. And um, it wouldn't exist without Ben. It wouldn't have the success it's had without Ben. And uh, I'm grateful to be part of it and and thank him for helping to us, for really making it happen. Uh, Somehow he finds time when not doing his duties at Brookings and not uh, managing the blog and writing uh, a tremendous stream of content for the blog, to write a series of incredible books. And some of his, uh, some of the books he's written that I am most keen on include "Detention and Denial," uh, "Law and the Long War," and the volume that he and and our friend Ken Anderson are currently uh, developing, uh, "Speaking the Law," which is a fascinating, almost almost real time uh, released chapter by chapter. Uh, exploration of how the Obama administration has used speeches both from the president himself and from leading uh, lawyers in the administration to express the administration 's position on the contested issues of legal policy that that uh, engage us all so much uh, on top of all that he 's got a black belt, so that I think is uh, uh, probably enough to get this conversation started. Uh, thank you Ben, for being here and i 'll turn over the rest of it to you
1: thanks so much. that was the um the most absurdly generous introduction I've gotten in a long time, and so this is why I come to Texas. Um, <laughs> so, I'm actually having just received this incredibly gracious introduction, I'm, I'm not going to spend uh, a lot of time introducing my co panelists um, at, at the risk of uh, it seeming churlish um, to accept such an introduction and then not to give one. Uh, we actually don't have a whole lot of time, and I want to use as much of it for the discussion as possible. So uh, Siobhan, Shane's, and Ellen's uh, uh, very ample bios are in your packets. Uh, I believe, um, just very briefly, Siobhan is with the Wall Street Journal, Shane is uh, with Foreign Policy, and Ellen is with the Washington Post. Uh, normally, when I moderate a panel, I uh, try to apply the the a principle that Jefferson said about government, that the government that uh, governs least governs best. I've never known whether I quite buy that about government, but I certainly buy it about moderators in a panel. Uh, um, I'm actually also going to sort of not do that this time because I I think this is uh, an area where, um, uh, you know, I've actually – been something of a critic of the way uh, the press has uh, handled this story. And so I'm, I want to use this as an opportunity to be uh, sort of a bit of the grand inquisitor. Um, I want to start, however, by asking the panelists, you know, just to talk a little bit about what it's like, co- been covering this story over the last, it's almost a year now, 10, eight, nine, ten months, um, and it has been, I think, for probably all of them, pretty all-consuming. It's a weird agency to try to cover as a reporter. Um, just you know, start Siobhan and go down. What, are, what kind of? What are your What are your like thoughts on the project at, 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 project. at, uh. at, at this stage of, it, of, of its mm-hmm. development?
2: Uh, well, uh, you asked to describe the process. I think it's been fairly grinding uh, since. Uh, June, whatever it was, 5th, I think the evening of June 5th when I was making dinner, it was probably 8 o'clock at night, just got the kid to bed, uh... You know, phone email comes in on my phone, forwarding a, a a link from the Guardian. An editor saying, "You know, the editors in New York are really freaking out about this. Don't we know this already?" And it's you know, it's the phone, it's the phone data program, right? And uh, I, I, again, I was sort of preoccupied with things. I look at the headline, I read the first few paragraphs. I'm like, "We know this. This is circa 2006. USA Today did a, you know." very ample story at that point this isn't news and then he gets back to me and says you know the the editors in New York are really freaking out about this and I said okay so I open the thing and I scroll through and I'm kind of like okay okay and then all of a sudden I look at it was either the top or the bottom of the story and there's a link to a FISA court you know opinion I said well this is different um these are not the kinds of things you normally read so you know I sort of say okay we've got a story here and I kind of you know get through the rest of the evening and kind of grudgingly uh, write up the story, feeling like, hey, we already knew this, but there is a document here, so, you know, we, we need to go ahead and do the story. And, um, you know, off, off we were with uh, what would become sort of the, the series of, of leaks from Edward Snowden. And it's, it's been really interesting to me because having covered these issues uh, over a, a fair amount of time now, almost 10 years, um, you know this this time it really is different, and i've I've spent some time kind of trying to figure out why and I think that at the center of it it is because it's involved the leak of actual documents and so whereas before, when we would report on a surveillance activity um, or really you know almost any intelligence activity uh you know reporters would do their best to get as much of the story as possible, and you'd be lucky to get between 1 and 10 percent of the story, uh, and you'd have a back and forth with uh, with with officials in government once you felt like you had the story together, uh, and, you know, after you vet to the degree that you can and have whatever exchanges you're going to have, you can go forth with the story. Um, and... That is how it 's been done it 's pretty rare to actually get documents, certainly not ones that have top secrets stripped across the top um, unless it, unless they 've been subsequently declassified so um, you know what 's been transformative about this is that there is so much evidence that it has prompted an entirely different response from the government than what normally happened and we What we have seen uh, over time and it was pretty slow at the beginning, um, but what we 've seen over time is. Uh, you know, increasing acknowledgement on the part of government officials of certain kinds of activities that are going on. Um, Is it to the degree that would, um, you know, really satisfy me and make me feel like, you know, we have the most comprehensive story that we possibly could on any given program? No. Uh, But it, it, it has really, really changed sort of the nature of both the way reporters are interacting with the government, um, as well as sort of the degree to which journalists can actually um, tell a complete story. And I I think that it's it's just been uh, sort of a, a, an interesting shift in the way that, that the reporting process has really uh, gone along. We can kind of discuss that more as we go down, but at the risk of droning on, I'll pass it over.
3: Um, I had a similar experience to Siobhan in that I was I was coming home on the night of June 5th and I got an email from my literary agent. Um, Back in 2010, I would published a book called The Watchers which was sort of describing this world but through the point of view of people who've been in government and and again not relying at all on documents. Um, An email was a link to the Guardian story and he just had the subject line, whoa. Uh, And a very similar reaction. You read it at first and you're saying, wait a second, call records, we get this. And then you see that there's this FISA court document attached to it. which you know, just going to repeat the significance of that. You just, that has never happened. I mean, and your immediate reaction is, oh, my God, somebody leaked from inside the FISA court. What's going on? And so that set off this whole, you know, rather extraordinary set of reactions and responses. And it was very clear within the first 12 hours that, you know, that that the attention on this was really really significant and was going to keep building. And, of course, more stories just kind of kept coming and coming and coming. Um, My life reporting that story, for the first three months or so largely consisted of waking up in the morning, going to work, waiting to see what Ellen's paper or The Guardian would be publishing that day, and then sort of counting down the seconds until my editor came to my desk and said, what do we do? What do we do? How do we follow it? Um, So there was this initial kind of just flood of information that was really extraordinary. And it was a grinding process to try and cover it and try to make sense of it. Um, Where I tried to come at it was not having access to those documents, trying to sort of call upon all the years that I'd done reporting on NSA and on surveillance and trying to find other stories that we could add to it um, that obviously we're not going to be based on source material. Um, but, you know, I think suffice to say, it's been, for me as a journalist, having covered this topic for the better part of a decade now, it's been the most extraordinary period in my professional life. Um, it's relentless. It's grinding. There is so much information. It is so complicated. It is so highly technical and legal, and you just sometimes kind of pinch yourself because you can't believe it's all being made public. I mean, it's really – it's quite a thing to be covering um, and not one that I ever expected. I sort of – it was funny when we published my book in 2010, there was a sense of, well, this is kind of old news. And we're sort of – it's a retrospective history of the rise of surveillance. And then this happens and suddenly everything old is new again. Um, but, uh, you know, I, to kind of go on one thing that Siobhan said about why this story has, has taken off the way it has – um, absolutely, the documents are the central sort of part of that. I also think there two other things that go along with it. Um, one really is the way that this story has been discussed and poured over in social media, um, the ability for experts and advocates and journalists and all kinds of people to, in close to real time, dissect the meaning of these documents, the import of the documents, to challenge each other's thinking on it. That We didn't have that just a few years ago. And the other, of course, is that the central figure in this, this is the ultimate source, identified himself uh, very publicly, and has been has now taken a role uh, in the discourse of himself. Of course, Edward Snowden. That's unique, I think, in these kinds of stories. And I I, I I do think that if you did not have him as a human face and kind of a protagonist in the narrative, um, I don't think the story would have gotten as much traction, as many as legs, as we say in our business. And I think there's a possibility that it may have been starting to die down uh, now. And you're starting to feel it kind of taper off, and we can talk more about that. But um, just the presence of Edward Snowden also made this uh, a unique story.
4: So uh, I think this... June 5th, the 215 order is becoming another one of these uh, where were you when JFK was shot moments for national security <laughs> journalists. did that. <laughs> because uh, I certainly also distinctly remember yeah. being outside on the patio, uh, having prepared It's going to be a wonderful early summer dinner, of like 615, and I was just sitting down to have my glass of the Sauvignon Blanc, and I happened to foolishly check my my blackberry and and I saw this email from a, um, a privacy advocate saying, "Have you seen this story in The Guardian?" I, I clicked on it, and I also quickly clicked on what looked like should be a document. I saw the court order, I ran upstairs. And I started calling uh, sort of sources and said, "Is this what it looks to be?" And you know, check the name of the judge. It all seemed to check out. And I said, "Oh my God! I think this is you know this is a big story," and immediately also felt like it was a story that would have legs because if this really was the sort of documentation of this telephone metadata program, which we had heard about. Um, this was the first sort of official kind of confirmation of it the the government couldn't just ign- deny it or ignore it as sort of happened back in 2006 when um, there was a little bit of an issue with one of the facts in the story and uh, sure i think the us state today walked it back a little bit and the story died um, you know in in this case the government fairly quickly uh, acknowledged declassified the existence of the program and acknowledged it what was also a little um interesting or different for me was that I guess it was maybe the next day, and as we're thinking, okay, this is the big story, I hear that a colleague of mine at the uh, Post actually had uh, other documents and was going to be coming out with a big story. In fact, I think it was maybe that night or the next night, and that was Bart Gelman who was breaking the PRISM story. Um, And I'm all of a sudden starting to realize that wait a minute, this is not just a one off, it's not just this one document you know, maybe there are other documents and other stories. And it just became a whirlwind uh, week and then month of of disclosures and and trying to be whipsawed back and forth between what the Guardian has and what maybe my colleague Bart has. At this point, I think in full disclosure, I should also say that uh, Bart is the person uh, at the post who has received the documents from Edward Snowden um, and sort of You know, remains the sort of sole gatekeeper for for the documents at the Post. Um, We, I have collaborated with Bart on one or two stories, but for the most part, um, he retains control over the documents, and um, you know, doesn't really even tell I think all the editors how many he has or what all's in them, um, largely for security purposes. so, I would say like the first three, four, five, six months even were were yes sort of focused on uh on the documents and on what the government was also disclosing in in reaction to the leaks, uh which you know is an important point to mention, which is this sort of transparency by the government was forced by the leaks, the media leaks, sort of was the forcing function for this transparency on the part of the government. And we are kind of consumed by, you know, reporting on these court orders from the FISA court, making sense of them, putting them into context. But now, I think a year on, it's a good time to sort of step back and take stock at what, not only what a dynamic and and really unprecedentedly rich um, and broad debate this has been, but also the fact that we're starting to also put this in context and and understand some deeper fundamental issues about this, what I see as a monumental shift in our approach to surveillance post-9-11, bred of advances in technology and the need to try to prevent another 9-11. And we can talk about this a little more, but I I see this as sort of the core issue of of, journalistic inquiry here, which is this shift to broad collection at the front end, uh, with, without the sort of traditional uh, individualized warrants or other limits, to um, having the privacy protections put on at the back end, you know, through minimization um, and restrictions on use and, and sharing, and those have implications for U.S. privacy and, as we're seeing now, also you know privacy of non-U.S. persons, uh, and and I think you know those are the sorts of issues that we are really having to to grapple with. Um, as, as reporters, and to try to convey them to the larger public right?
1: so I want to I focus a little bit on your all 's evaluation of the press 's institutional performance here, so usually when you get a group of 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 reporters together, um, uh, there 's a certain uh, triumphalism about about the press and i 've been part of the press and therefore been part of that triumphalism myself. In this case, you have uh, a different, somewhat different dynamic, which is that a lot of people have criti- – I'm, I'm one of them – have criticized aspects of the press's performance institutionally in this space. Um, and specifically in, in, I think, broadly speaking, in, in three areas. The first is that media organizations have published things that shouldn't be published – um, and the second is that some of the stories that have been published have been inaccurate um, in either big ways or small ways. Um, and the third is that um, there is a, a, you know, a, a, a wash of information relative to uh, context uh, such that you kind of increase the amount of information but not, the, not increase the amount of wisdom. And I'm, I'm interested in talking about all three of those areas. Um, Shane, let's start with you. What, what in, that, in that broad indictment is fair and what's unfair? <clears throat>
3: um, I will say at the outset, I think that in general, I think the press has acquitted itself very well. And, and I think that we have done a good job of covering the story, um, certainly comprehensively, in trying to capture all of the, the data that comes out. In, in all of these various leaks and the various forms that they come out, mostly in documents. Um, where I think that, institutionally speaking, I think we have not done a great job, and I, and I can include myself in this as well, probably goes to your, your third critique. Um, I think that in many cases our stories have, by necessity, delved into the weeds of the technology and of the policy because it is fundamentally important to understand each of these programs and these activities on their own. And where I think we've not done a great job is sort of stepping back and for, you know, frankly, for your ordinary reader explaining, like, what does any of this actually mean? Like, what do I need to pay the most attention to? What's important? What is less important? Uh, And making more critical evaluations of it to try and explain to them you know, listen, this is how the narrative all fits together. It's extremely difficult to do from a tradecraft perspective when every day or so or every week is bringing a new revelation and we have to give that the attention that it's owed and that it's due. Um, I'm not saying that it hasn't been done, but I think we could be doing a better job of trying to contextualize it and, and sort of add the knowledge or the wisdom to the data that we're collecting. And,
1: and you're comfortable with the proposition that the average member of the public, controlling for that, reading the string of stories that appeared, uh, including the ones that contained substantial errors, um, has come away in the aggregate um, better informed um, and, and, and has gotten a reasonable account of where uh, where the initial stories were, were, were less than
3: entirely fulsome or, or accurate? I doubt it. Um, uh, I, I don't know. That most people who I know, I, mean, I, use my, I use my own family as a barometer of this, um, don't know whether the government's listening to their phone calls or reading all of their emails. Um, there is substantial confusion around this for a lot of people. I think that prior to these stories, though, they assumed that it was happening. I mean, for a lot of people who read these stories, I think that it does not come as a surprise or a shock, and they're not that outraged by it, frankly. Um, So I don't know that we have done a great job of sort of just stepping back and saying, here are the ten things that you need to know. I mean, I had a conversation about this about a month ago with a former editor of a very prominent magazine uh, who said, you know, look, I'm a sophisticated person, I'm a journalist, and I don't know what to make of this. And I wish there were more stories out there just saying, look, here's what you need to know. Here's what you should be paying attention to and trying to contextualize it. And, you know, and that's our job. I mean, that is really the role. That is the role that we play in this entire equation. And it's, we haven't done it perfectly. I think we've been much more focused, again, I think by necessity of the volume of information, on diving down into the, the nuances of, of each of those programs that come out, which, by the way, we have to do too. I mean, you can't just, you have to do both. You can't just do one or the other.
4: Could Ellen, I, could well, I just, well, Ellen,
1: what do you think? Well,
3: how, could, how do you how do you assess it?
4: I, in fact, it, this goes exactly to the point I was trying to make um, about how at the, you know now almost a year into this, it's time to really sort of do, step back and put it all in context and and look at really sort of the the fundamental uh, issues at stake, which I think have also tended to get lost in um, over the last year or so in some of the. Um, you know, some of this coverage, some of the debate, has gotten a little too ac- acrimonious, in my opinion, and get gotten caught up in whether Edward Snowden is is a traitor or a hero, which I think dis- distracts from sort of the the fundamental the issues. Um, and as I was sort of saying, I think, you know, uh, Admiral Inman was saying, American people still ask him, are, are is the NSA spying on us? Well. If the question is, is the NSA spying on you for political purposes, the answer is no. But the NSA has been, at the direction of the administration, of the government, been collecting large amounts of information, in some cases metadata, in some cases content, um, and for the purposes of counterterrorism, and for, for purposes of foreign intelligence. And in some cases, now in the case of 215, that includes Americans' phone numbers, right? Their numbers, uh, uh, what time their calls were and how long. There's debate, legitimate debate, about whether or not that constitutes a sort of invasion of privacy. Does that cross the line in some way? You know, There's also debate about whether it's legal, whether it's constitutional, but putting aside the legality and the constitutionality, is it the right thing to do? Is it the wise thing to do? Do we want to do it? President Obama recently just came out and said... Even though I believe it's it's legal and it has value, because of the potential for abuse, I think that kind of collection by the government has to stop. So those are sort of you know some of the deeper underlying first principles types of questions we need to really focus on. And at the same time, I think what we're seeing, what we're what's emerging, is this really interesting um, other issue of overseas collection. And because of the changing nature of technology and the fact that you're and my emails and texts can be zipping around the world and be stored in data centers, US data centers, companies data centers overseas and zipping back and forth, those can get collected in massive amounts before. Is there are the back end privacy protections right now adequate, sufficient to protecting Americans' privacy? These are a little more nuanced questions than whether or not you know J Edgar Hoover has ordered spying on on Martin Luther King all right for, or political protesters but these are nonetheless I think important questions um, and briefly you know we're as, as the press is this, this is we've, we're kind of not um, you know just a handful of establishment papers and newspapers anymore and magazines the institution of the press has greatly broadened to include Bloggers, um, lawfare is, is, is part of the press in a sense, who's covering this debate and helping to inform it. And I, I would agree with Shane that in general, I think, especially in the establishment uh, press, we've, we've acquitted ourselves well or tried to stick to the issues, but we're not perfect. Um, I, you know, I know mistakes are made. We should try to avoid them, we should correct them. In the case of the, um, there was, was a story last summer about. French, uh, the NSA collecting 70 million French communications that broke. I'm not sure if it was in a European paper or what. Chabon and I, though, both also did stories, I think fairly close the next day. Front page, in our case, saying, no, this was you know, not true, that in fact, uh, it was the French government collecting this and sharing it with, uh, with the U.S. So that, you know, that's one example where we, we try to be as, as accurate as possible.
2: You stole my example. <laughs> <laughs> um a, a couple thoughts um just one on the question of you know how how has the institution of the press performed i think that it, i i sort of question that assumption of whether there is an institution of the press anymore um i think that this story perhaps more than many has shown how much um the the institution so to speak has fragmented i mean we have historically kind of come at these kinds of stories from the perspective of the U.S. press. And so, you know, uh, you look at questions of has U.S. law been broken? Um, and and you could have, you know, some sort of engagement back and forth with the, the interested parties in government as to whether or not this is a legitimate story, whether it harms national security, things like that. Um, This time around, this is – it's an international story, um, and it's uh, largely driven by individuals. I mean, Edward Snowden gave documents to individuals. Those individuals have now affiliated themselves with many, many publications over time. I mean, it's been kind of strange to see – the same names now appearing in so many different publications. That's not how it's happened. I mean, this is this is a, a set of documents that has literally spawned its own publication. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, all of these things are very unusual, and I think it um, it means that the the sort of traditional ways in which these stories were reported, um, the kind of thing that that Admiral Inman um, talked about, sort of his establishing this this formal back and forth with the news media, um, I mean, that is actually roughly, uh, up until a year or so ago, how it worked. I mean, you 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 got a story, you got a sensitive story, you put the pieces together, you brought it to, you know, you go through the front door to the press office, and then you'd have a back and forth. It might be a brief one, it might be an extended one, but the idea was that once you went to press with a story, you at least had some understanding of the implications of that, and the government had an understanding of how they were going to handle it, too. That can't happen uh, with with sort of the, the current arrangement because there are just so many different actors. Um, and I think that that means that uh, at one level, you have a lot of intense competition, which in our industry is usually very good. Um, but at another level uh because that competition is uh, so intense and because uh, the the metabolism now of the media is so much higher uh, probably than it was even a year or two ago um, you end up probably with more errors perpetuating themselves um you know i I remember you know when when we learned that the um, the reports about the collection of data in France and Spain were incorrect. I mean it took it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around that because you know it was like well but we saw the documents and you know in talking to various sources we came to understand well you know just things a lot as as with you know complicated documents things aren't always immediately what they seem. Um and we you know made the effort to report that out and it went on the front page of the paper. Um, but you know interestingly that um, um, those concerns have been perpetuated, uh, and it, it may well be because there are additional reports out there that have perpetuated um, this, this sense of NSA, um, you know, collecting uh, tons and tons of data from, you know, uh, allied countries and things like that. But the um, the government's response has also been to try to address it. I mean, one of the, the key things that President Obama has proposed is providing greater protections to c- citizens abroad. Um, and I still haven't really been able to Figure out which what specifically that's responding to because it can't be responding to the the issue about uh, spying on foreign leaders because that they're they're dealing with that through other mechanisms um, so sometimes the government's response has also seemed to I think perpetuate um, at least what some in government feel to be misconceptions so um, that I think has has contributed at least to um, you know. Some Some additional confusion um, sometimes, and then on on the last the last issue just having to do with providing context um, I mean I think it can be very hard just because of the volumes of documents going on to provide context for each one of them. Um, one thing that that the journal has done, and we're certainly not unique in in this and 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 Shane and Ellen have have certainly done this too um, but but our approach sort of generally has been um, we actually aren't really reporting document by document on the on the Snowden um, materials. What we're doing instead is just using it as an opportunity to report more broadly on what's going on uh, in the surveillance arena. So whether that's other programs, um, tapping the internet backbone, uh, other 215 programs, things like that, or, um, you know, trying to just kind of track the government response and sort of look at what the follow-on impacts are. Um, you know, I mean, there, there are media outlets that are trying to, you know, fill in blanks and provide context as well, uh, but that can just be very hard with a deluge of documents for for everybody to kind of really feel like they have a comprehensive picture.
1: So, as people have questions, just signal me, and and I will uh, brutally interrupt our panelists to give you a chance to to, to pose them. Um, I'm interested in Siobhan's point that this episode is heavily conditioned by the decision of Edward Snowden to give the documents to individuals, which is a point that I've made as well and that I think uh, colors an enormous amount of what has happened since. And um, all three of the recipients, um, with with the exception, I suppose, of Glenn Greenwald, who was affiliated with the Guardian at the time he received the material and is no longer uh, took the documents with him, basically. Um, you basically have a major leak to uh, of a giant trove of information to individuals who then have the media organizations kind <laughs> of over a barrel in terms of their negotiations with them. And I'm interested for all of your sense of how that affects the dynamics, how would this have been different if the trove of documents had gone to you in your capacity as a Wall Street Journal reporter? Or the stories te- would
2: have been fabulous. Uh, they would have all been fabulous. <laughs> and all had tons <clears throat> of context. And, and, and it'll be and, out and, and, and yeah. <laughs> there uh, It's actually a <laughs> particularly
1: interesting question to Ellen. So they go to the Washington Post, mm-hmm. but they go to you in your employed capacity as the Washington Post rather than to Bart, who then brings them to the post and controls access to them, as you described before. How is the world different if that's the way things played a year ago?
4: Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't know unless, I mean, I haven't seen the documents, but I guess generally speaking, um, you know, I think in many ways we would have had to do some of the same things, which is find a secure way to, to keep the documents uh, I really, I I don't know a lot of detail about that. This has been one of the most highly compartmentalized uh, sort of uh, reporting endeavors ever, ever seen at the Washington Post. Um, I will say that. And I can't say very much more, you know, beyond sort of describing in broad terms what our, uh, you know, the Post's general policy is in terms of dealing with the government in, in vetting, um, you know, Documents, what stories we're going to publish, and whether there's weighing the national security uh, damage against the public policy risk. Uh, but I, I don't feel comfortable speculating really about how it might be different. Uh, um
2: Well, I mean, just a, a couple thoughts. Um, one, you know, I mean, if 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 they were given to one U.S. News institution. Um, I'll just be agnostic on 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 who that would be. I, it, it changes. I think it changes the conversation a little bit with um, the government uh, in a couple ways. One, it ends up just being. I think it would end up falling in the traditional model of you have information, you you piece it together, you do some additional reporting, uh, you think you have the story and you understand it. You you know go through. The, the press office at the relevant agency and then you have a back and forth about his story. In this case, uh, what you've seen is a proliferation of documents um, often to international press which wouldn't have – they could have a conversation with the U.S. government, but they're making a different calculation. They're not making calculations based on U.S. national security. If you're Der Spiegel, what you care about is who's spying on you. And so the nature of what makes a story changes quite a bit. Um, I also think that uh, if if one story or if one, one media organization, say a U.S. media organization, has um, sort of a monopoly over this, you know, huge trove of documents um, – that changes the competitive pressures as well. So you you probably would actually see stories coming out more slowly um, because uh, reporters would feel like, well, we actually have we have time to do some additional reporting here, and we don't have to get it all out there. But um, you know, not being a part of the the group of journalists that has them, um, I, I can only imagine that there is a lot of concern about, well, if if people have, Roughly similar um, sets of documents, you know you want to make sure you find the best ones first and put it out there and so you may not always have time uh, to to do as much reporting on a given um, document or story as you might want to do under that circumstance.
3: Um, I, I want to amplify on that too, because I have some thoughts on this. I mean first, I want to say that it may be unique in journalism to have a situation where a source gave over so much material that is so highly specific to a group of people and then essentially no longer became the custodian of those records and then transferred that sort of role onto the reporters. And there's maybe an analogy with WikiLeaks, but I think there's important differences there, which we don't have to go into right now. But this may be a unique situation where the reporters are sort of the custodian of the record and also the reporting and reporting on it. And that creates all kinds of challenges that I think we are still working through. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is absolutely the case that that then led to the proliferation of these different news organizations. I think that one of the knock-on effects of that has been that the threshold for what makes it into a newspaper or news organization based on how sensitive is it, should we report on it, does it reveal too much about sources and methods, that that threshold has dropped. And I think that you, I I, am convinced that there are stories that are running after June 2013 that would not have run before June 2013 because of the competitive pressures in our business. Can you name one? Um, several. I mean I, I mean, I think the sources, you know, stories that have named individual targets, whether they be companies or countries for surveillance, um, stories that have published technical diagrams and specifics on how exploits are, are put out. I'm not saying that they should or shouldn't have been published. I'm not taking a view on that. I want to be very clear. But I think there would have been much more resistance to publishing some of these highly technical stories before June of 2013 and one of the reasons why I think you're seeing more of them is because the general presumption is they're going to get out one way or another and we might as well go ahead and do it our way. Could,
4: could I also but just um, push back a little bit on that with the caveat that I um, have not been involved in many of these actual stories um, so don't know the full you know, what went into the reporting. However I do feel, I do know that because I know Bart and Ashkan Sultani, who we've hired on as sort of a technical um, expert to contribute as well to the story, because we felt it was important to really try to understand uh, as best we could uh, what it is that we were seeing in the documents. But I, I do think in every case, when they ran a story, they believed it was because it was important uh, for the public to know. And <clears throat> I do know that they, that between BART and the government, and sometimes the editors and, and the ODNI usually and NSA, there were uh, conversations and discussions about whether certain uh, points, details, documents would be damaging. Would, and beyond, uh, you know, loss of life issues, uh, With the blow operations, because in general I think the idea was to enable debate and discussion, and not uh, shut down the the program or, or closed discussion because the program could no longer be uh, conducted. Um, and just you know, one recent example I think is um, it's this program Mystic that Bart and uh, Ashkan wrote about, which reportedly uh, you know collects uh, all phone call content um, in, in a country. Um, the country was known to them. I don't know what, what country it is, but they withheld the country's name uh, because they were persuaded in discussions with the government that uh, to reveal the country would, would, would blow the operation, would be damaging.
1: So we have several uh, questions from the floor, which I'm going to, I, I guess I'm going to ask that uh, we take them in order, and then the order that I saw them and why don't we just line them up, and then the panel can address whichever one, you know, whichever one seem most relevant to them. So we have Bruce Schneier, Chris Inglis, and Admiral, in- and Admiral Inman. Um, why don't we just, just go in order and line up a bunch of questions, and then we'll talk.
5: I mean, one of the interesting things about these documents and these stories is that there are actually several stories. I mean, you're talking about how the tech is good and the, the politics and social is bad. My response is the exact opposite. The tech is terrible and much worse than the politics, and the stories are being written for a different audience. As, as a technologist, I need the tech details to try to fix these things, or to improve security. And I think one of the issues we have is that the stories are being written by mainstream newspapers, mainstream journalists for a mainstream audience. And the technology details we need, I mean, the stuff that I look to when I am, I'm writing about these documents is, is the more the technology. And I think that dynamic is very interesting because the tech is extraordinarily complicated, and when they get it wrong, they're getting the tech wrong and extrapolating into policy. And it's just... And I, I agree, though, the, the, when they get it wrong, it's kind of a disaster. But it's because they, these, these are very technically hard, and, you know, there's not... While there are good tech people looking at it, there often isn't the outlet for those tech stories that Ash and I want to write, for example.
4: Well, I mean that is precisely why we hired Ash Sultani. Um, but then there's sort of it has to be this process of, of you know, translating as well the insights that Ashkan brings to uh, a, a general to audience, audience, to our audience, and that's that's not easy. Do, do you I mean, want us to respond to each question as we go, l-
1: or? L- Let's let's play it by ear. I, I, I would just one further response, there's an exact analog point on the law to the point that you just made on the tech. The law is also extraordinarily dense and complicated. And, you know, you get a PowerPoint presentation to um, that summarizes a program and it has these um, kind of high-altitude statements about law and the translation of that in the coverage into you know what what the Pfizer requires in that situation can be a, can be a very
2: tricky little problem so
5: we're all annoyed at the aspect of the coverage we know that <laughs> exactly <laughs>
2: Well, um, I, I also think that one 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 point that you're also speaking to is just the limitations of reporting based on documents. Um, you know, there's uh, there's certainly an allure there that once you have the documents, you know exactly what's going on. Um, you know, as with the aforementioned example with the boundless informant slides on on France and and uh, and Spain, sometimes it, there's actually a lot of interpretive uh, work that goes into that and. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, I'm not sure that there's really any report, or any reporter out there with the resources to really be able to understand. Uh, taking a look at you know each individual slide to know exactly what that means, um, which is, I think, why we've, we've engaged um, far more with NSA on this, um, this story than we have on any other story, you know, because I mean, when it comes down to it, uh, these are, this is the agency where the documents came from. They're going to know uh, generally what they mean, and, um, you know, that's why we're kind of seeing a, a constant um, testing of how much NSA is willing to, to say to explain and correct inaccuracies um as as they see them uh, floating around so you know one one good thing about having the documents is they're now available for technology specialists to look at and also try to make sense of but the difficulty there is um you know documents in and of themselves obviously aren't going to have the context you need to understand
6: So my question uh, begins where Bruce left off. I agree that it is a disaster when these stories are mistold, whether it's through the technology lens, the law lens, or the policy lens, um, and, and then we spend the rest of our time trying to chase that with a fuller telling of the story. Um, You know, I think I respect and appreciate that um, the day after, right, the story was mistold about what NSA may or may not have done in France or Germany or Norway, Uh, there's a front page article that essentially tried to tell the rest of that story. Uh, But it's like the old adage in business, which is it's generally first to market, not best to market that wins, right, and everybody else is in a tail chase. Um, And and so my hope is that the answer to the question that was asked um, was that if this had been given to the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, other kind of, um, kind of, mainstream media outlets, that, that your answer in terms of what would you have done was to try to tell the fuller telling of the story, um, that upon recognizing you had a leak of something called a secondary order on June 5th, you would have said maybe there's a primary order and maybe the rest of the story is important to tell this in context so that we don't so much titillate and inflame, but we inform. Um, that's my hope. Um, and now looking over our shoulder and saying that that's an opportunity cost of you know how we spent much of 2013. Um, that we might have this moment in time to say we're going to stop, pause, right, and actually try to be more deliberate and and more kind of um, thoughtful. And I don't mean by that to criticize that we've been unthoughtful, but to be more full in the telling of the story. And the risk you'll run is that you'll sometimes be second to market, but that we hopefully can overwhelm right? those who are in the, those who are in the fast lane with their titillating stories um, with what might be might be more appealing to the um, audience that we're trying to actually tell the story to as they say, I've been titillated. I've kind of gone to the edge. I think I now understand the worst possibilities here. I'd like to have a deeper understanding of this. I want to buy the book, not the newspaper, on this.
3: Can, can I just make a comment on that, too? I think we're getting – I think we're about there. I mean, I can just sort of feel that – Within the newsroom, that the appetite, especially among my editors, for yet another story about X, Y, Z is just—it's really diminished. And I think that's where we come in with this. With my earlier critique that we haven't been adding that context. I mean, I decided to go write a book, which will be out in November, by the way. Um, you know, and so uh, you know, and I think I hope that that's where we're going next. Because I mean, we really this—we've been sort of operating at a rather breakneck speed for the past ten months, and it might be time to just come up for air and take a breath but I think institutionally that is happening
2: I, I think I think it'll go it'll go one of two ways because certainly in the last few months um, the 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 story just sort of based on each document the it's been kind of diminishing returns because I think you know people sort of Sense of the narrative, so to speak, gets said, and now you know each each document doesn't add necessarily that much more to that. And so I think what what it will be is kind of maybe a combination of, of three things. Um, one, I mean, there's obviously a lot of focus on what what the response is, how the government is is responding, what changes, what doesn't change, and that will certainly be a story that continues. Um, I do think that there um, will be some demand. I hope um, for kind of broader step-back pieces. Let's reassess. Let's figure out how it is that we really got here um, so that we can understand, you know, where where these issues now take us. Technology isn't going to stop changing. Um, you know, surveillance isn't going to end. Countries still need to know uh, what, you know, what kind of national security threats lurk out there, and obviously surveillance is a key way for any government to understand that. So these issues aren't going away. Um, one thing I do wonder um and uh, i i think we'll we'll see what happens is if if we do start seeing a drop-off in sort of the rolling out of documents, um, whether or not the public interest just sort of evaporates. And that sort of, you know, as, as someone who has followed these issues for a long time and, and cares a lot about them, I truly hope that doesn't happen. Um, but the media is sort of a, it's a there's a, a supply and demand relationship you have with your audience. And so you know, if, if people, it turns out, are no longer interested in surveillance, you just want to know what the local, you know, sports news is, um, then all of a sudden it becomes harder to get those stories in the paper. And so you know, what I think we're all probably working for is to, to make sure that we can pull some of those um, broader stories together soon enough so that you kind of keep riding that wave um, before it just sort of
6: so Could I take a follow up and I'll, I'll just say that um, this might surprise you um, and I'm no longer in the government but, but I kind of speak um, as if I were um, my hope is that we don't let that happen, right, that, that we don't let this kind of go into some cul-de-sac and some quiet backwater because we'll need the calculus of understanding. We'll need that context of understanding um, the next time this spikes, the next time somebody tells a salacious kind of rendition of this story um, that we didn't have as a basis of larger understanding in June of 2013. And so the time to actually kind of set the stage for whatever this turns into in the next kind of, you know, rendering of this story is now. Um, and, and so we need to keep pushing this before the public so that it becomes something I think I understand that. I understand that in context. I'm comfortable with that. And anything that departs from that in an extraordinary salacious way, they can place into context because they have the foundation in hand.
4: Merlin? Can I just say, I actually think the, the document drop-off happened a while ago. Um, and, and I think that uh, the, big, the big revelations were the, the 215 program, um, to some extent PRISM, and then uh, maybe starting in the fall, we started to see a wave of stories about overseas collection under 1233, which is more of a sleeper story. But I think it's one worth paying attention to, because as we start to understand a little bit better uh, the the sh- the cause for the shift and and what the implications are for this sort of we don't even really understand as public yet uh, what the scale of of this kind of collection is and the, what the scale of incidental collection is of, of used person data under this type of collection. But I do think that, that that's an important policy question about whether or not the, the minimization, the privacy protections that are afforded to these uh, communications are, are adequate. Um, and I, do, I think that the story has shifted. We're almost a year into this now. It's, it's shifted. It started to shift a while ago, but it's clearly shifted now, right, to, to Congress especially. Uh, for a while there, I would say December, January, the focus was on the White House, on Obama. What was he going to do? You know, there was the White House Review Board uh, report, then there was the PCLOB report, and then what was Obama going to do? And he, he made his decision. I think that, too, is an important thing to note, is the political climate has shifted uh, dramatically from about a year ago it looked like and when the initial revelations came out <laughs> excuse me about uh, the 215 telephone program metadata program that okay you know this was going to cause maybe some 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 stir controversy fulfillment debate but probably wasn't going to change right and then um, the the amasha vote um, amendment vote aside in july then you start to just see however the, the i don't know because of the the reporting that we all have done um, and, and, the, and the richness of the debate, that in the end, uh, you know, Obama decided that this sort of bulk collection should should no longer continue. And I think an important question that we should pursue as journalists in the coming year is whether or not that uh, ban on so-called bulk collection of telephone metadata should apply more broadly to all forms of uh, bulk collection um, and would be put in statute. I think that's an important policy question. It's still an open one. And then a second question is whether this newfound transparency is really a permanent shift, uh, a real... Is it going to be baked into the culture of of the agencies, or is it more of a sort of a tactical um, uh, move, um, you know, to, to try to respond to the crisis of the moment, and one that will... Uh, Subside as the document releases subside.
7: Admiral? I'm clearly a generation earlier than all of this, but you will have gotten earlier my concern at introducing judicial review and uh, congressional oversight. There's a tendency to overclassify. I've watched that my whole life. From your perspective now, looking at all that you've seen, would you propose dealing differently with the FISA court's decisions, reporting, what's not? I remain unreconstructed. You have to protect who the targets are and something that might tell them their vulnerability you're exploiting. But from what you've watched, could, would it have been helpful, could we take a better view now, of what's said about the judicial review? and how that process goes down and the oversight from the committee. Are,
2: are you saying, should more have been known about what the FISA court was doing? Yes. Um, I, I think uh, the answer is, is certainly yes, um, particularly once the role of the FISA court was shifted so profoundly in 2008. Um, you know, once you shift to something kind of now known as a programmatic warrant. Um, You're not talking about specific sources. You are talking about methods in a very broad way, Um, but it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a program, it's not individuals, it's not, you know, tapping a, a, an individual source's phone. Um, and in, in most cases, you don't even know, I mean, you know, you could can, can do it without talking about specific companies or something like that, I suppose. Um, but I think that we've even seen um, uh, a certain number of intelligence leaders at this point saying uh, that they should have been more upfront earlier on about the nature of some of these programs because it would have reduced kind of the public shock uh, once all of these disclosures happened. And I, I think that particularly once you have a court that is um you know, responsible for approving and and also overseeing whole programs, it's important certainly for the com- the, the public to appreciate that that's what's going on. And um, you know, as someone who was covering this in 2008, um, at the time, I don't think I fully I, I know that I didn't fully understand what was meant by what they were calling a basket warrant. The way the folks on the Hill were describing it when they passed that law was, well, now we can go after specific groups of of individuals. So it seemed like you could have a basket warrant for al-Qaeda and a basket warrant for Hezbollah, it wasn't described to us in a way that was, well, you can have a basket warrant for tapping, you know, different parts of the internet backbone and you can have a basket warrant for um, you know, bulk collection or, I mean, that's a separate program, I'll, I'll keep away from that, but a, a basket warrant for um, the prison program and, and that you could have entire, you know, structures of programs that just got one warrant and that was how it was working and so I think that if the public had better understood what the implications of those changes were in 2008, and ideally where they came from, because all, all these programs, most of them had predecessors, um, I think that there, there just would have been a fuller understanding of how NSA was using these authorities, um, and you know, it also would have given the, the government an opportunity to, to explain the levels of controls that were going on in terms of the role of the courts.
1: So I think we have uh, time for one more question from the audience, um, and then we will uh, I'll give each of the panelists a chance to wrap up
7: after <coughs> excuse me after a year of revelation of these documents has the industry or anyone noticed a pattern of how they were released there's been a focus on privacy there's been a focus on uh, international relations or how our allies uh will now relate to the United States, uh, the war on terror, possibly uh, public uh, revolt. Has there been a pattern noticed on how they were released and the information that was released?
3: Um, I thought that I knew one in the beginning, but I don't know that that it holds up now. I mean, it, it certainly seemed like the two first stories were the most significant, so I presume that the journalists looked at what they had and said, What's the most important story? And let's get those out first. There seem to be some that were timed to meetings that were going on with foreign leaders. Um, I don't know whether that was calculated or not. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure I can really detect any rhyme or reason particularly on them now, except that I presume that journalists are working on some stories that take much longer to report and to research and that that's why some of them may come out uh, later. I mean, Bruce may actually have some insights into that question, too.
5: much, and there's no way to read it all and say, here are my top stories, you know, in order. You
3: read, and then, oh, this is a good one, let's go with that. But one hopes that, and I don't know this because I don't have access to the documents, that if there is a PowerPoint presentation describing surveillance of people for political purposes, that somebody has done a meta-cataloguing of what's in the database, so that we're not two years from now finding out, wow, this is a story we should have had three years ago.
1: Um, I would not be surprised if something like that happens. My God, we miss this. I, I, I think that. Yeah, I, 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 I think it's. I'm, What's
6: I'm that? Sorry? For the record, I would. Be. <laughs> I, I, I think there's. I think there is a. Questions. No, 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 I, I wouldn't be surprised that there's something you know that that explosive in the in the set that would indicate the government has in fact violated right the Constitution, right, the right. laws derived from that, I'm uh, saying. Oh,
5: okay. I'm saying. that that there probably is something in the set that's that's you know, a really big story that's just been missed until now?
1: I, I think there's a little bit more of a pattern than, than any of you have said, um, which is that the, stor- the stories start with, um, with uh, you know, the most explosive stuff relative to U.S. person privacy, the, pro- the programmatic activity that is most surprising from a U.S. privacy point of view. Uh, It continues on U.S. person uh, privacy-related stuff until that stuff seems to be more or less exhausted, at which point it moves on to uh, foreign nationals' privacy um, in stuff that is indisputably lawful under U.S. law but kind of rubs a lot of people the wrong way overseas for entirely understandable reasons. U.S. law favors U.S. persons' privacy. If you happen to be German, that's not the most comforting thing in the world. Um, and then as that stuff has uh, under 702 has started to wane, it has kind of moved on to what uh, to, to, to 12333 collection. I, I, I think, I think the, it, lar- it loosely tracks the, the declining controversy of the relevant legal authorities. Was
7: that industry-driven or Snowden-driven?
1: By the so I have no insight whatsoever into... From what into, it, little it, I know,
4: it's not Snowden-driven. I mean, I, it's really, what little I know, I think up to the individual reporters who possess the documents to decide what to report on or to disclose or publish and when.
6: My own perspective, one perspective of many, is that this has not been um, um, independent of the, the people who Snowden released these documents to in the first place. They had their biases. Um, most of those biases uh, presupposed based upon the experience, the perspective that they enjoyed, that the government was acting in contravention to its own constitution, its own laws, and in contravention to the values and principles it shares with other governments. And so the picking and telling of the stories essentially feed um, or support that bias. That that's my sense of what the stories have done. And even when those stories are picked, right, there's a little bit of cherry picking in terms of telling the story in the most salacious way. A focus on capabilities that might be abused as opposed to demonstrating in fact that they have been abused.
3: Can I can I be a reporter real quick and just ask, do you agree with Ellen's assessment that Snowden is not directing or has any kind of say over what gets published and
6: when? I would say honestly, I don't know, but but my sense is he is no longer in control of this. He's largely dropped these, and then the kind of the choice of when and where to paste this is is no longer in his control.
1: We are uh, at the end of our hour. Uh, thanks to the panel, and thanks to all who contributed from the floor. <laughs>